0: Well, we're in chapter two. Believe it or not. We've been in John chapter one for for quite some time, but it's been a it's a chapter that's just so full of the truth of who Jesus is. And John has prepared us in chapter one to know who this, this book that he's written, this gospel is about. And you may remember uh, that John wrote his gospel quite a while after uh, the other gospel writers wrote theirs. And so he's not writing all of the same things that they wrote, but a good bit of the Gospel of John. It's the only place we can find these, these incidents and these, these events that happened in the life of Jesus and the things that are, are taught in his life. And so he started us off not trying to figure out who this person Jesus is, but by, he just kind of dumped the whole load in a sense. Said, here's who he is. "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." And then he says, "...the Word became flesh and dwelt among us." He talked about how those who receive Him have the right to be children of God and receive His salvation. And So he gives us right off the bat in that first chapter, this is who you're looking at. This is not just any teacher. This is not just any man. It's not even a great prophet. But this is the Messiah. And through the, the, the mouths of the first apostles that he called, or disciples that he called, he has them actually tell us, we have found the Messiah, or the anointed one, the one that was promised, the one that the prophets have spoken about. We have found the one who is the Son of God. In other words, he himself is deity. He is God but here in human flesh. So having been given all of that in chapter 1, and if you haven't been with us for you know, for these many messages going through chapter 1, go back, and even if you have been, it's good to go back and review as we pass through, pass through the different things that, that John gives us. Keep going back, review chapter 1, and say, well, what does this next part have to do with all that we were told about who Jesus is? And so as we go into chapter 2, John is going to put Jesus in an earthly context. And So we're no longer just discussing the facts about who he is, but we're going to to watch him live and interact with humanity as the God-man. And so here we find in chapter 2, the first 11 verses, Jesus at a wedding. Um, Something we find in every culture. Something that, uh, of course, you've probably been to a few weddings this summer, uh, and if not, you probably have have one coming up. It's part of life, right? And so, as as we, uh, so I'm gonna go ahead and go read through these first eleven verses. Just keep that in mind. Here is here is Jesus in a context we probably all found ourselves in a little bit different because it's a Jewish wedding in the first century. Uh, but here he is, being one of us. So, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, or the, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some water out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So coming to a wedding, now probably some of you, even if you've you've lived a few decades, uh, look at weddings today and say, well, they're pretty different than when back in our day when we got married. But now we're going to transport back to the first century in Israel, uh, in the Jewish culture, and so a wedding there would have, take on a, some different elements than, than ours would. Um, for one thing, it was the groom's family who was responsible for the occasion. Now, that's a, that's a that's something I think yeah, I could go back to, <laughs> being the father of four daughters. <laughs> but when the when the prep when when the arrangement was made, you know for. Um, a man and a woman to be married, the the young man, well, the man would go back to his father's house and began, begin building a place attached to the father's house. It was more of a complex, typically, for them to live. And he would go and he would, he would have that work to do to prepare a place for them to live. And he would have to keep working until his father said, okay, you've finished, you've completed it. Now you can go and get your bride. Bride had to be all ready, right? Because he could show up anytime that the father said things are ready. And so she'd have to be ready and waiting. I'm sure she had spies out watching the work, but. And, and the groom would come with his attendants and they would go and get the bride and everyone would come back to the place of the wedding, come back and celebrate at the father's house. And it was, a, it was a huge deal. It was an important social and community event. This was no you know, quiet little wedding off in the corner somewhere. A wedding feast in, in Israel in these days could last for several days, even up to a full week. And then you had to provide food, you had to provide wine, you had to make your guests feel welcome. So this was a really a big deal and a major financial undertaking to do that, uh, because probably you have to have to invite a lot of people to something like that. Now this wedding we're talking about here in in this book uh, took place in Jesus' home area uh, near his his hometown of Nazareth. And if we go ahead and put the, the map up there, we'll get a little bit of idea how how close that was. But we mentioned this because the last person that he that Jesus has talked to is from Cana, but, uh, from, this is from Cana. Here's Nazareth where Jesus grew up and worked as a carpenter and just about, it's about 10 miles north as the crow flies. Okay. And so, uh, a ways if you have to get there by walking or by riding a, an animal. Okay. But still within their general circle, I think, of, of social, uh, interactions. Uh, if you think about it from here, 10, Ten miles, it almost gets you to Whitehall, it gets you to Harrison Lake. So not terribly far away. Um, and so <clears throat> they're really in, in the neighborhood. And what's important here is that, uh, that Mary was invited. Apparently, Jesus' mother, Mary, was, was known to the family well. And, and she seems to have a close, personal connection uh, to this family. Uh, by the things that we see in this particular section. She doesn't just show up as a guest and and say, well, they're out of wine. This is, this is ridiculous. You know? She actually wants to do something about it. She wants to spare them uh, the embarrassment. And we'll get to that, more about what that's about in a moment. Uh, But Jesus also and his disciples were invited. And so one of the things that this tells us, the fact that Jesus and his disciples were invited, is that we're at a point here where at least some people were aware that now Jesus was living and acting as a rabbi, not as a carpenter. So we have to assume, I would assume, and Scripture doesn't point this out, but I think in my mind I'd always always think about it, but his family understood that he'd made a switch. He had been in Nazareth. Working, He's called the carpenter by the people of Nazareth and later, later on in his ministry. That's how they've known him. But now it's understood that he is a rabbi with disciples who are following him and learning from him enough so that this family invites not only Jesus, but his disciples along with him. And so he's already begun that process. We've been introduced to five of those men in chapter 1. But notice that Jesus didn't just hold classes. He didn't just say, Well, if you want to follow me, show up between 10 and 12 on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you know, and evenings the rest of the days. Well, they came and, and they were with him in all kinds of contexts. And in this case, they're with him at a wedding. Because there were things that they could learn by being with Jesus in that context, observing him, and I don't know. Maybe In pointing things out. Jesus had a way of pointing things out to them. Did you notice this? Have you seen this? The kingdom of heaven is like this. As as you go through the Gospels, you'll notice several places where Jesus uses a wedding or a wedding feast as an illustration of the kingdom of God or as a picture of what's going to happen in the future. And so Here's a, really a, a good example for us as well that as we are discipling others, we're helping them to know Jesus more and better, we should do that in all kinds of different contexts. We should take them along with us to the things that we do or, or as we find them in those same contexts, take those opportunities in that discipleship to say, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about what our culture thinks about this? What do you think about what God thinks about marriage in this case, or whatever place you happen to find yourself? That's the way Jesus discipled his men. When we get to verse 3, though, Jesus is is approached by his mother with a problem. As I mentioned before, uh, it seems as though she was pretty close to this family, and she's very concerned and and from our our perspective if you go to a wedding and things don't go too good you might say oh that, that was that's kind of silly they forgot to have this or they didn't do that at the wedding you know they didn't they ran out of cake um and we laugh it off and we go on right um this is actually a, an issue of embarrassment yes but it was a culture of shame and if you understand a culture of shame it's it's very that's really what motivates Shame and, and honor. And so if you if you do things the right way, in the right place, the right time, you're you honored. If you don't, you're ashamed, and that can really cost you socially. It's a, a huge motivator in that kind of a culture. And these this family, by running out of wine, had put themselves in a terrible place in their society, with their neighbors, with their friends. In fact, there were potential legal liabilities for running out of wine. Because the guests would bring costly gifts to help this couple get on their way. And if the family didn't come through with the right kind of a a wedding feast, they could actually be sued by the guests. And so it wasn't just a matter of Mary saying, oh, I'm, I'm so embarrassed for my friends or my relatives that are putting on this wedding. Uh, there were there was some major costs that they would incur by having not planned well enough to have enough wine. We don't know why they ran out of wine. But clearly, Mary was involved in some important way in this wedding. And a lot of, you know, there are a lot, you can read lots of commentaries and no guess about whose wedding it is. John didn't think we needed to know, so we're not going to go there this morning. The other thing about this, why, why did she come to Jesus with this? Well, one of the things that we might, you might notice in the Gospels is that Joseph, Mary's husband, wasn't, isn't mentioned in the Gospels after the trip that they make for the Passover when Jesus is 12 years old. If you remember, Jesus stayed, stayed back and they had to turn around and go back and find him. There's no mention of Joseph after that. At least, as far as being, you know, him being and doing things, he's mentioned as being Jesus' father in in certain cases. Um, But most, I'd say, the vast majority of people believe that Joseph, sometime between that point and this point, had died, and so Jesus had become, as the firstborn son in the family, the one responsible for taking care of the family. Jesus had become the one who would have taken over the carpenter work. Jesus would have been the one who was the man of the family to, to take care of the bills and take care of the problems and, and deal with all those kinds of things. Matter of fact, in just a few years, when Jesus is hanging on the cross dying, you remember what he does? You know, here's, here's John, who's writing this gospel, and his mother Mary, and he, and he entrusts Mary into John's care. Well, if, if Joseph was still alive, there would be no need for that. Okay? And so that gives us, a, really, I think, a very almost certainty that Joseph had passed away by this time. And so I think Mary had gotten used to coming to Jesus with her problems and difficulties. Um, and, he, of course, he would have been, I mean, imagine having Jesus you know, as your firstborn son taking care of you. He would have been a faithful provider. He would have provided good leadership for his family, uh, for his brothers, his sisters. So, when there was a problem, it was just totally natural for her to go and say, Jesus, look at what, look at this. Look at what's happening. And Jesus gives an interesting response, and it's, it's given rise to all kinds of different speculation about what he means. And some of it has to do with the wording, and, and some of it fits their culture and not ours. Uh, but as, as he responds, it says in verse four, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And you'll notice your version may not say it quite like that. Um, what has this to do with us? It might say, why do you involve me? Or what does this have to do with me? Um, literally what he says there is, what to me and to you? And it's a Hebrew idiom. and It's just that idea that this is what you're talking about and this is us over here, or this is me over here. What's the connection? How do these two things go together? And I think primarily he's asking that question for Mary's sake. I don't think he's trying to say, leave me alone, get away from me. I think he's he's wanting her to stop and consider the situation, consider her motives, uh, consider... What Jesus' priorities are at this point in his life. I, I don't think that she's asking him to do a miracle. We have no evidence in scripture that Jesus had ever performed any miracle prior to that. In fact, John here specifically tells us that this is the beginning of his signs that he did. Now, there are outside of scripture stories that have been made up about Jesus, you know, transforming clay birds so that they come to life and all kinds of different fanciful things, but we don't have any reason to believe that ever happened. I think she's really just coming to him and saying, Jesus, she knows She knows he's not just anybody, right? From before she he was even conceived in her womb, she was told who he was, that he was the coming Messiah, that he was Emmanuel, God with us, right? And she pondered those things. But she also knew that he was a good man who knew what to do when the circumstance was difficult, because she'd walked with him through many of those. I think there's a sense in which here Jesus has moved from being the person who primarily was at home, taking care of his mother and his family, has probably shifted those duties to his brothers, and now he is the rabbi. Now he is going and saying to men, like we saw at the end of the last chapter, come, follow me. Come, be with me. And his concern now is primarily to do specific things that are his heavenly Father's will. Now understand, taking care of Mary in those years and working as a carp, those were specifically his Father's will up to that point. But at this point, his his mission on earth becomes far more focused. And as as he'll say multiple times, I only do what my Father tells me to do. I only do my Father's will. And I think as he says this to Mary, he's saying, and I think he must have had some conversations with her and with the rest of his family. I mean, just because a lot of men don't communicate doesn't mean Jesus didn't, right? He was God-man. So I think he had prepared his family for what was going to happen here. And now he's saying, how does what you're asking me about fit with where you know I'm, I'm going? What God has me doing? What he wants me to, to say and to do in this reason for coming to earth? So the Father's purposes and timing are primary and preeminent. So it seems reasonable that that's kind of what he's getting at. Mary, remember why I'm here. Her mom, I don't know if he brought, he called her woman here, right? Maybe that's something to do with it. It wasn't disrespectful, but maybe it was a way of saying, you know who I am. And you know where where I'm headed to some degree. How does this fit? Now isn't my time. In other words, This isn't the time according to the father's schedule for me to be drawing a lot of attention to myself. This isn't my time according to the father's schedule to be just your son. So I think he's calling her to make an adjustment in her thinking. And I think it's moving her to a higher level of faith. Because you look at what she does in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And I think a lot of times people look at that and they say, oh, well, she just, she's being a mom and she just makes him do what, what she wants. But I think it's, it's actually maybe the other way around in that I think Mary, Mary is a believer in Jesus. She's pondered the things she was told and she will be one of, she'll be standing there at his cross. She will be with the disciples after his death and after his resurrection. Mary was a believer in Jesus, not as her little boy or her son, but as the Messiah, the Son of God. I think Mary does what every believer in the Messiah is called to do. that even though she didn't really understand all that was going on, she was willing to entrust her circumstances to him. So she just says to the servants, I'm turning this over to him. Whatever he thinks is best, do it. See, she had no guarantees that he was going to provide more wine. He may have, ta- you know, he could have taken a whole different route. It might have been they would have, have to have to suffer, you know, the embarrassment. It might be that this family would have to, to suffer, you know, the shame in their community. She has confidence that he'll come up with the best course of action, though. She knows that the situation is beyond her ability to deal with. But she knows that Jesus can handle it. So she said to them, whatever he tells you, do it. And so in verses 6 through 8, now Jesus takes some action. So verse 6, now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Well, first of all, I'd like to note that what happens as we move forward is that Jesus is gracious toward these people. He didn't have to rescue this family, but he did it, and he accomplished his much greater purposes. And oftentimes God provides help in our difficult circumstances while he's also carrying out greater goals, bigger goals than what it is we've come to him wanting help for. I think we need that's important for us to keep in mind, right? Because so many things we say, Lord, I can't handle this. Help me. And we're just looking for deliverance from our circumstance, you know, or, or help out of the pain. And so often he, he does answer, right, in the way we want. And he helps us to escape the circumstance or provides an easier way through the circumstance. And we say, praise the Lord, thank you. And we move on with life, right? Okay? A lot of times he's doing more than just getting us out of discomfort. And he doesn't have to do that, does he? He doesn't have to take us out of those difficulties. Sometimes it's better for us to go through them, right? But he has a compassion. So the Gospels talk often, Jesus had compassion on them. And I think that's what happens here as well. He has compassion on this family. He understands uh, the trouble and the the shame that they're going to be in. And he takes action that will not only spare this family, but will also carry out his father's purposes. And so we just read about these six water pots, stone water pots. They're large. Uh, Think about how big it would have to be to hold 20 to 30 gallons each. Um, They're made of stone because, as it says here, their purpose is for ceremonial washing. And they would be ceremonially washing hands and pots and dishes. Here we have a large feast going on, right? So they would need lots of water that was not going to to cause ceremonial uncleanliness. Now, more porous clay pots would tend to hold things in them that would would say, oh, well, you can't mix. Think about the law, the Jewish law. You can't mix this kind of food and that kind of food together. You can't have this kind of thing come in contact with your food. And so the Pharisees, who were some of the key religious leaders of the day, they had a whole whole protocol for how you washed your hands before meals how you washed your dishes so you made sure you didn't mix you know dairy with your goat meat because that might make you break the law that says you're not to boil a kid in his mother's milk and so all these things so you didn't possibly break the law and so these stone jars were used for that because this is a big a big event, I think probably they, they may have borrowed, unless they were very wealthy, borrowed some other stone jars so that as the people came in, they could go through the ceremonial hand washing. But then all of the dishes and the pots could all be washed properly. And so here they are, and they're so wrapped up in that because that's what they've been taught by the Pharisees, right? And a good host would, would have them. They would do that. Probably maybe at a lot of expense. Jesus is is concerned, though, about this being wrapped up in all of, all of those traditions that aren't necessarily from God. Now, turn with me to, to Luke 11. This takes us farther into his ministry than we are currently in John. But it gives us a good example of what Jesus' thoughts are about this. Luke 11, verses 37 through 41. Here, speaking of Jesus, it says, Now when he had spoken a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he did not first ceremonially wash before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones! Did not he who made the outside make the inside too? But give that which is with." in as charity and then all things will be clean for you so this wasn't a matter of hygiene like we wash our hands right we don't want to get sick we don't want to now it was the ceremonial washings that had become everything and they'd forgotten about the heart they'd forgotten about wanting to to love god and to please him so in this case, Jesus, and maybe this is what he always did, he just avoid he just skipped the whole ceremonial washing of his hands because he saw how it's just getting in the way. It's turning the focus into all these little deeds that you do. And then people think, well, I did all those good good things that the that the Pharisees said I needed to do, so God and I were good. In the meantime, they're lusting in their heart or they're you know they're they're covetous or they're angry or or whatever else is going on said, wait a minute, the inside needs to be cleaned. Then the rest of this is of little consequence. And so I think the fact that Jesus takes these jars and ends up filling them up full of wine instead of water probably caused a bit of a stir later on when somebody came to wash their hands. How, how, do I, how am I going to do this? I can't do the ceremonial washing. And Jesus wanted them to wonder about that. Now, what would happen if they didn't go through with their customs? Well, Jesus continues with his instructions, or starts with his instructions, actually, I guess. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And so we got quite a job to do here, right? Six jugs, or pots, 20 to 30 gallons each. Depending on where the water source is, did they have to go a distance to a well to bring it back? Uh, how full were they still from being filled up to be used for the ceremonial washings? We don't know. Uh, but apparently they at least trusted Mary enough to say, well, she said to do whatever Jesus said, so we're going to fill these up. Also notice that they fill them up to the brim. They fill them up to the very top with what? Water. Nothing but water in these stone jars. Nothing they're going to take on from stone jars, right? All we have is water. There's no room to add anything after the fact. Just water. And then Jesus does a dance and a prayer and raises his hand. doesn't, does he? According to verse 8, it just says, And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Stip it out. And this pers- person, you got various titles in your Bible depending on which version you have, but this would have been someone who was basically in charge overall looking o- over the feast. All of the food, all the wine, those kind of things, that was his job. Maybe even like the master of ceremonies. So he doesn't know that they've just dipped into the water pots, but it was just water. But we don't see a big to do, do we? In fact, it happens really quietly. From all we can tell, Jesus didn't even pray out loud to the Father, like sometimes he did when he did it did a miracle or would do a miracle later. It appears that only the servants, Mary, and his disciples seem to know anything has happened. And what's the outcome? Well, verse 9 says, When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, and then John whispers in our ear, But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And When the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This man who's in charge of everything being just so, Recognizes the quality of this wine. This is really good stuff. It, ex- it exceeds the stuff they've been drinking up to this point. Water, changing water to wine may sound like a small miracle. But I'll challenge you to try it. It's not easy. You see, because a pot full of water doesn't have all the materials in it for wine. This wasn't just a rearranging of atoms or molecules. You don't have the atoms or the molecules in that pot for wine to exist. I mean, and Jesus, you could say he makes wine all the time. But the process that normally is used is the water goes into the ground, right? Well, you have to have nurtured and grown vines to take in that water. And those vines, in a way, in ways we don't we don't understand the process, what goes inside inside a vine, really, right? I think even scientists and and, and people who grow vineyards, oh, they've, they've got a better idea. But stuff goes on inside that vine that takes that water, takes the nutrients out of the soil, takes the, the energy from the sun, and trans, transfers that into what it's doing. And grapes grow. Right? How it happens? We don't fully know, but God does it. Produces this amazing fruit full of sugar and flavor and, and taste, right? And then from there, it has to be taken. It has to be harvested. Uh, the juice has to be squished out, and then the juice has to be taken. It has to be treated in just the right. Way. Never made wine, but I think it's a fairly involved process from what I've heard. And it has to be has to be put in just the right place for the right amount of time and aged right. But not only that to be served at a wedding in Jesus day it also to be proper wine to not be considered uh, a too strong a strong drink it was diluted with water. Quite a bit diluted with water. So by the way this isn't nearly the alcohol content of things that we have in today's wine. So if, they'd, if Jesus had made just pure wine, they took it right to the head waiter, he'd say, what are you trying to do? Get everybody really drunk? But when he drank it, he said, no, this this is really good wine. It had the smell it needed to have. It had the taste it needed to have. It was also of, of the appropriate amount of water-wine mixture, and yet all they'd put into the pot was water, right? Jesus does an act of creation here he puts into that pot something that is only there because he chose for it to exist in that pot he created the elements for not just any wine but quality wine in those pots and the outcome surprised the man in charge of the feast and I think he surprised the bridegroom too, because he had no idea what was going on. That's the immediate result. But more importantly, verse 11 tells us why Jesus was, was doing this. It says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's a very quiet but powerful miracle. Jesus did it to, to reveal to his disciples, I think especially, as it mentions them in the next phrase, who he is, what his actual nature is. And he limited those who really observed what was going on here. But they were given a demonstration of his true character and power as the creator here. I mean, the ease with which this creation happens shows who he truly is. And he made excellent wine, and he made a huge amount of wine, between 120 and 180 gallons, right? He doesn't go small. And so they would have had enough for the whole feast. Maybe they had quite a bit left over. This could have ended up being a, a huge financial gift to the couple who's being married. So not only are they going from out of wine, but now they're to very likely surplus wine of the best kind. And he leaves no room for those who knew what was going on to think it was a trick. Right? He put all the parameters in place. The only conclusion they could come to was Jesus created wine in that pot. And the result, with his disciples, it says, they believed in him. They'd already made some pretty amazing declarations, hadn't they? We saw at the end of chapter 1. They talked about who he was and the things they said were, were correct. And they believed them. They said, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. He is the one that the prophets spoke about. They'd come to the right conclusions. Jesus now helps them to take the belief and acknowledgement of the truth that they already have and take it to a deeper level. It's no longer just, I know these things to be facts. But I've seen in Jesus something that's different than every other man. I've seen him do something that somebody who's just a man could never do. I've seen God creating. Whether they could put it into those words or not, I don't know. But I think within them they're saying, this is something beyond my experience. And these men, along with others that are called to follow him, will be growing in their faith all along the way. And he helps them and the others with specific works that are designed for the purposes that fits, fit his Father's will. And that's true for us too, isn't it? We come to Jesus and and hopefully you have. You've already said, I believe in you, Jesus. I, I ask for the forgiveness of my sins. I ask for the gift of eternal life. And you say, You are the Savior. But if you've walked with Jesus very long, you know that He brings things into your life so that you can experience Him in new ways and fuller ways and deeper ways and know His character and know His plans. That's what he's doing here. And that's what he wants to do in all of our lives is to keep us growing deeper and deeper in faith and knowing him. Matter of fact, if as we close, you turn to the very end of the gospel, John chapter 20. It's good to go to the beginning of John a lot. It's good to come back to these, these verses toward the end of John as well. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. As John is wrapping up his gospel, he tells us why he wrote it. He said, there are many other signs. John will uh, use about seven key signs to help us understand Jesus. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written about in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. so here, Here's beginning objective. You hear these signs, these miraculous things that he did, and you would believe in him. You would put your faith in him as the promised Messiah, the anointed one, as God. Here he says the Son of God, which makes him equal with God. So he wants you to come to that point of faith. But then he says, and that is, Believing, and he switches the the tense here to a present tense. And that, entering into a state of ongoing belief. You may have, again, the present tense verb, you may keep on having life in his name. So we hear these miracles, we can say, wow, look what Jesus did. Don't let it just be, that's cool. Let it be, this is about me entering more fully and deeply into this relationship with this man who has all of this power, wisdom, knowledge, and love and compassion for me, for all human beings. It's not a sideshow. It's not an exhibition. It's Jesus reaching out to us and saying, I want you to know me, and I want you to share in the life that I've come to give, take, so Take this, this situation. Let it soak in. Meditate on it through the week. To that end, that you would know Him better and believe in Him more completely, more fully. Share it with others so that they too can do that. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to have preserved this for us. And I pray that you would Keep on using it in our hearts. Maybe we've we've heard or read this dozens of times across the course of our life. Or maybe we, maybe there are those here who are hearing it for the first time. In any case, I know you have more for us to to learn and to know. And I pray that you would uh, strengthen our faith, help us to believe more fully, more accurately, and in a way that impacts uh, not just our Sunday mornings, uh, but every Every day of our life, every breath that we take, everything that we do, as we see that's that was your desire through through John as he wrote this gospel. Thank you that that's even possible. We look forward to what you will continue to do, knowing that that you are faithful to continue to do the the good work that you began in us. We praise you in Jesus' name.